My name is Neil Goldie-Scott, and I currently run the um, restructuring group for restructuring advisory group for HSBC, which was set up in 2008 to help companies that got into, into financial difficulties negotiate with their creditors and find a way through that particular issue. However, before that, I was um, pan-European head of M&A, and it is about an M&A transaction that uh, I want to talk to you about today. As you may also be aware, we've come into this uh, process relatively late, so um, apologies that you will not have had the information as early as, um, as we would have liked. But I did try and circulate uh, yesterday afternoon some information on the transaction I wish to talk about, which is the sale of the Evershot Rail Group, uh, which was awarded the, the Global Infrastructure M&A Transaction of the Year 2010 and was completed late last year. So... The information that was uh, distributed gave you a bit of information on the, um, the rail industry, the Roscoe landscape, and, and some precedent transactions. I will run through that quickly and then seek to answer with you some of the questions set out below, which are, why would a, a bank invest in a train set, and why then did the banks all decide to sell their train sets? What were the lessons learned from the previous precedent transactions? How would you value such a business? What are the key drivers to valuing that business? And then talk about a number of issues, try and raise, answer a number of questions that uh, were specific, specifically relevant to this transaction, which was undertaken in very challenging market conditions with not only the background of the credit crunch, but also the intervention of the Greek uh, debt crisis and then subsequently the Irish debt crisis. Okay, a bit about the, the rail industry. In the mid-1990s, the government privatised what was British Rail, and in doing so, it split it into three separate uh, distinct entities. It was Rail Track, uh, which is the infrastructure, if you like, the rails on which trains run. The train operators, which don't own anything, but enter into an agreement to operate trains, typically for periods of seven to ten years. And then the Roscoe's, which are the companies that actually own the, the rolling stock. It's about the Roscoe's that I want to talk today. There's quite a lot of regulation involved in this sector, needless to say. Um, the DTI enters into franchise agreements with the TOX, <coughs> which sets certain um, minimum requirements in terms of train operation. And then the train operator enters into a contract, a lease, for typically the same length of time as its franchise to lease the rolling stock from the Roscoe's. The Roscoe's are responsible for buying the new train sets, commissioning them and maintaining them in most cases. The difference between what are called wet leases and dry leases is that in a wet lease the Roscoe retains the responsibility and obligation to maintain the, the train. In a dry lease that obligation is taken on by the train operators. One of the key features of this industry is that the trains have typically a, um, a lifespan of 30 to 35 years, whereas, as I've just indicated, the, the franchises are typically only for 7 or 10 years. The other thing to say by way of background is that uh, there was a, a competition commission inquiry into the, uh, the operation of the train market started in 2007 because the... Um, Department of Transport felt that the Roscoe's were achieving too high a return on their investment. 
However, the, the Competition Commission concluded that whilst the market didn't operate in an entirely competitive environment, that was the fault of how the, the, um, the privatisation was structured in the first place, uh, and it recommended uh, as a practical change solely that leases should be entered into for a longer period of time and franchises should be entered into a longer period of time. So moving rather from the 7 to 10 years to 15 to potentially 20 years. As I mentioned, the, the Roscoe's are essentially three companies, Angel Trains, Evershot Rail Group and Porterbrook, that constitute the whole of the UK um, operating market, bar 2 or 3%. If you look at the figures there, you'll see that they are of a very similar size. Um, in fact, both Angel and Porterbrook, when they were sold, had um, European operations as well. But Evershot was unique in having only UK operations. It is worth noting that trains are not uh, easily transferable, not only between country to country, but even between line and line uh, within, the, within the UK market. They are quite often bespoke to a specific line, and that's to do with quite often tunnels or weights um, that are required for, for bridges and tunnels. So it, it isn't a particularly competitive market. Um, and equally, uh, the other thing to say is there are very few trains that are operational but are not used at any given time. So one of the key factors in, ter in terms of determining the pricing of this business is a, the interplay between the cost of a new train and the further operational life you can get out of the existing uh, rolling stock. And that is termed in the industry as, as differential pricing, indifference pricing rather, and indifference pricing determines very much the price of, of the new lease. So, first question, why would a bank buy a train set? As it happened, no, none of the, um, the banks decided to own train operating companies. It was decided that wasn't a business that they were particularly well uh, designed to operate. I mean, the fact of the matter is that uh, train operating companies produce very high, very consistent, and very stable cash flows. And that is obviously attractive to banks. They, they're also very stable investments. The point about banks and how they use their capital is that under Baal II and, and subsequently under Baal III when it um, comes into effect, banks are obliged to set aside a certain amount of capital for every loan or investment they make. And with a, a train operating company, which is essentially a leasing business, the amount of capital they have to set aside against that that particular asset is, is relatively low and therefore they can make a higher return on their business than lending for instance to a, a triple B rated company where they have to put more capital aside. So it is a good, very good use of their risk weighted assets. But the, the third and uh, most important feature of leasing businesses, all leasing businesses, is that they are or they were particularly attractive uh, in terms of tax for um, for banks, and part of the reason for that is that um, uh, you, you might be surprised to think of this in the current climate where banks are getting um, such bad publicity. But but banks do pay an awful lot of tax to the exchequer. They, they are in fact the single largest um, pair of tax, corporation tax, as a sector to the UK economy, and there are very few ways that banks can avoid paying that tax. However, um, for leasing operations, uh, and the, the government had an incentive to encourage uh, corporates generally to invest in infrastructure and in, in capital projects 
and had a very significant incentive in uh, writing off allowances in early years to defer tax effectively. So every time the, the train operating companies invested in a new train, they were able to ha have a writing off allowance of 100% in year one, which very significantly reduced the tax that they were paying, deferred the tax, I should say, that they were paying. So, however, since 2008, all, all three <coughs> banks have decided to sell those train businesses. Any, any ideas why they sold those businesses? It wasn't a core business for any of the banks. As you may have heard, um, banks are all short of capital, and they all needed to raise capital. I mean, that was particularly the case with RBS, which was government-owned and, and government-supported. It, it needed to raise capital any way it could. True to a, a certain but lesser extent with Abbey, that was owned by Santander, which is a, one, Europe's largest, uh, or, or the EU's largest bank. Um, HSBC is a slightly different category, because it wasn't short of capital. However, uh, one of the other features you will find in M&A markets is that there is a slight herd instinct. Um, and when two-thirds of the market has, has changed hands, the, the big question is, well, why isn't HSBC or why isn't the third party doing the same thing? And so the HSBC felt it should get out of the market. Uh, it, it came under some pressure from its shareholders to do so, and so it, it decided to do so. Uh, other important thing was that the, they changed the rules on um, capital allowances, which made it a less profitable or less tax advantageous way to, to invest capital. Right, let's look at the precedent transactions. Um, I'm afraid the information sent around to you last night um, perhaps wasn't as detailed as um, I would have liked, but what it shows here is that very similar EBITDA multiples for these two transactions very significant amount of debt was put in place. About 75% of the enterprise value in each case was made up of, of senior debt. The debt, however, was three, five, and, and seven years in duration. If you think that these assets have a, have a life of 25 to 35 years, there's a mismatch. I admit the, the wrong way around from what normally happens in terms of financial markets, but there's a mismatch between the the length of life of the debt and the length of life of, of the asset. Now, another feature of these two transactions, and, and we bear in mind they took place in 2008 at right at the, the height of the credit crunch, was that both the vendors, both, both RBS and, um, and Abbey, were forced to put very significant amounts of vendor finance into the transaction. In other words, to get the price they wanted, they needed to leave some money on the table. Which, which they did. Uh, and a third thing, which you will have got if you, um, if you read some press around this transaction, was that Schedule 10, which is a, um, uh, a nuance to the tax legislation, was an issue which was of great concern to all potential purchasers. Now, if I can just explain what Schedule 10 is, it, it is a clause of the Tax Act which states that having taken advantage of the, of the writing down allowances, which I referred to in the previous slide, if the asset is sold, then the taxman can come after that asset and claw back all the tax that has been deferred. In each case, we're talking very significant sums of money here. Um, between four and six hundred million pounds are very significant in the context of the whole value of the, of the businesses, which could have been crystallized on day one. Now, no one thought that the law was intended to capture this because it was a genuine trade to 
um, you know, there was a genuine intent to, to trade out of the asset, and it wasn't done to avoid tax. But nonetheless, if you're putting, what, four or five hundred million pounds of equity behind, or, or in the case of um, Angel, seven hundred million pounds of equity behind a, tra a, a trade, and potentially you could be hit the following day with a bill for four to six hundred million pounds in tax, it obviously doesn't make any sense. So in each of those cases, the Schedule 10 became a very big issue, and, and indeed the, the vendors were forced, obliged to give indemnities against the payment of tax. There's very much, a very significant amount of debt involved in these transactions. And the other thing to say about those transactions is that they were delayed far and beyond what you would have expected for a, for a transaction of that nature because it was very difficult in the time to get the debt um, in the marketplace. If, if you saw in the Angel transaction some of the information that I sent around last night, there were, I think, 13 different banks, including Polish banks. I mean, why would a Polish bank be, be lending into um, a UK train set? I mean, the answer indeed was because they needed to draw the net very widely to get um, enough debt for this transaction. That also deals with um, the, um, the availability of debt. What about the debt terms? Anyone got any ideas about uh, key features here? Well, I've alluded to some of them. It's the fact that they could only get three and five year money even though they were investing on a 20, 25, 35-year basis. So there was a very significant refinancing risk on those transactions. Also, the value is driven very much by the terms that you can get. And then Schedule 10, as well, I, I mentioned that indemnities were required. It was a, a key factor, and it meant that the, um, the, uh, the vendors were unable to extricate themselves entirely from this business. We're taking those key factors and that analysis from the present transactions. What we did was see whether we could re-engineer this process for the sale of Eversholt and, and improve on the process and, and give greater certainty and greater value to the vendor. So what we did, quite novelly, was we said the vendor would arrange a group of eight banks to put the capital structure, to put the, the debt rather, in place. Now, it's not unusual for, um, for, for a vendor to arrange what's called staple finance, which is, here's the asset I'm selling and I'm stapling attached to it some, some debt. However, in normal market conditions, the staple finance is simply a straw man for the purchaser's advisors and the purchaser's debt to come and, uh, and beat those terms. And uh, almost invariably, prior to uh, this transaction, the staple debt was not used because uh, the competitive advantage that uh, two competing bidders would have is, is being able to push their banks, their lending banks, to give them better terms than the competition. But we said, if you're gonna buy this business, you have to use our, our debt. And there were, there were two reasons for that. One is we didn't believe there was that much debt available, and we believed we knew where all the debt was that could fund this transaction. 
Secondly, it meant that we had much greater visibility over some of the variabilities in value and in timing in the process. Also what we did was we said, again I'm very unusually, we will complete this transaction not only with acquisition debt, which needs to be refinanced over three, five and seven years, but we will put in place at completion some bonds. In fact, we put £700 million worth of bonds in place at completion, which were of 10 and 15 year duration. And that extended the life of the financing quite considerably and de-risked the transaction as far as the equity was concerned and therefore enhanced value. Bearing in mind, within two weeks of us receiving the indicative offers for the business, the, um, the Greek debt crisis blew up and the, the debt markets, which had been quite active up until that point in time, actually closed. So no one was lending any money, no bank was lending any money for a period of about six weeks and no bonds were issued at all. And that, again, for a similar period, and that is quite an extraordinary thing because even in the height of the credit crunch up until that point, banks had still been lending for particular transactions and bonds had been issued. So to have that hiatus was quite extraordinary. And I'll come back to that later in, in, the, um, in this presentation because it, it addresses one of the other features that we were able to add value and differentiate this particular transaction from others. And not specifically as a result of the... Um, uh, uh, of analysing the other transactions, but through some work that the vendor had done prior to um, putting this company up for sale, uh, the vendor had been able to completely remove Schedule 10 liability and, and the concern about that from the table. And they'd done that by transferring the assets of uh, Evershot Rail from the UK into a, an Irish holding company. And Ireland doesn't have the same tax issues, and so whatever tax issues there were remained with HSBC and not with the, the purchaser. And so again, that very significantly uh, mitigated against risk. Simple question, how would you value Orozco? Because of the, the, the length of the cash flows and the certainty of the cash flows, the, the only sensible way to, to value Orozco is, is based on its, its discounted cash flow. Because um, even though you saw in one of the previous slides the EBITDAs were you know, up and down a little bit, what actually mattered was the specific cash flow generation over the lifetime of those assets. Now, what are the key factors then in, um, in determining value? Given that it's DCF, what are, what are the key factors that actually determine value? The, the, the cash flows are pretty certain, with, with one exception, which I'll come on to talk to you about in a moment. But what therefore determined the value that could be achieved was entirely the capital structure. And therefore, in this very uncertain market, what we wanted to do as the vendor is determine the capital structure. And so we put in place the debt, the quantum of the debt was a very significant determinant of value, the terms of the debt, and also the return that equity was looking for. We knew broadly the quantum of equity that we needed to get this transaction away. But what mattered very much was the return expectations of the equity. Now that may sound like a simplistic thing to say, but it was very relevant here because what happens in the PE market space is you've got 
most private equity investors are looking for returns of 20, 25%, maybe a little bit lower if it's, if it's a low-risk asset. However, if you're going into the infrastructure space, if you're selling to an infrastructure investor, the returns are much, much lower, between 12 and 15%. Therefore, it was absolutely critical for us in terms of achieving value to persuade potential purchasers that this was an infrastructure asset and not a, uh, not a private equity asset. Very simple, you might think. However, most infrastructure investors, one of the core definitions of infrastructure is it doesn't move. And of course, the one thing these assets do is, is move every day, all day, up and down the, the train tracks. So what we had to do was convince investors that notwithstanding this asset moved, it had infrastructure-like characteristics. And we were helped, actually, by comparing this business and the performance of this business through the credit crunch with other businesses that people had accepted were infrastructure assets, like, for instance, airports. An airport is a, you know, is a traditional infrastructure-type asset, but its performance uh, was dramatically affected by the credit crunch, dramatically affected by recession, as fewer people travelled, fewer revenues going through the, um, through the airports. However, even for, for train Roscoe, even if fewer people were travelling on trains, and uh, as you may know, if you travel on trains, most trains are still overcrowded, notwithstanding the, the, the economic uh, climate, that didn't matter to the Roscoe because they had a seven to ten year contract with, an, with, a, with a certain income stream. The other thing that materially affected the value, is coming to your point about the business, if we could convince investors that the way to look at this business was not that it had just a 25 or a 30 year life, but actually by investing a bit of money during that time, you could extend the life of a train by five or ten years. That had a huge impact on the value. And indeed, our timing couldn't have been better in many respects because at the time we were trying to sell this business, the government was obviously looking around for ways to save money. And it was a very easy concept to identify that actually the government was going to be short of money even in ten years' time and was going to be looking for ways to extend the life of trains without being forced to make further investment in new rolling stock. So that was a very powerful uh, part of the valuation story. Okay, how do you maintain value uh, when you're selling an asset in a difficult market conditions? Well, the, the obvious answer to that and, and the, the sort of corporate finance 101 handbook on selling an asset is you, can, you maintain competitive tension. You get multiple bidders to bid and you get multiple, you know, you get them to bid and then rebid, and the the process over the last 10, 15 years in the city has been refined and refined to keep competition going right up to the last minute. Typically, what happened in a in a traditional transaction going back 15 years was that the 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 vendor would have the power up until a certain point in the transaction, but when it became evident that the particular vendor you were negotiating with was the only game in town, then power shifted quite dramatically to the purchaser. And anyone who's been in our industry has, has suffered and knows very well that awful meeting when you're acting on the sell side and the, um, you know, the, the, the purchaser phones up and says, we need to have a meeting. And they come up with a whole list of issues that they found and reasons why you need to reduce the price. And 
if you don't have competition, it's very difficult to, to maintain the price against you know, a, a momentum and a perception that you are, you, you know, you've probably even announced it publicly that you're selling this asset. And therefore, the, the, the great concern is uh, you are going to lose the commercial negotiating position once you get down to, to a single bidder. And therefore, it's very important to keep competition going right up to the end. However, on this occasion, there was no competition. There were no other buyers in the market that wanted this particular asset, apart from the consortium that bought the business. And part of the reason for that is that our two separate bidders that we thought were going to compete right up to the end, unfortunately, joined um, with each other, and they um, ended up in a consortium. Very frustrating for us. But nonetheless, uh, that happens. So what do you do in those circumstances? Well, as I've alluded to earlier on, one of the things you do is you minimize the things that they can negotiate about. You, again, in a traditional transaction, the, the purchaser would have been responsible for, for the finance. And if, as happened with the, with the, the Greek and the Irish debt crisis, market conditions deteriorated, they would come to you and wring their hands and say, well, sorry, you know, we would have loved to have kept our price the same, but unfortunately, you know, our banks are telling us they can't lend to us in the same terms any longer. And as a vendor, you've got very little control over that, very little visibility over that quite often, and you very often lose that particular argument. However, on this transaction, we kept control of the financing, and we knew exactly what the terms were and we knew exactly what changes were or were not being uh, required by the market. So we didn't lose the negotiation because of capital changes. The other thing we did was when the, when the Greek crisis came along, of course, the purchaser did come and wring their hands and say to us, well, look, I'm sorry, guys, the, the market's changed. Um, we need to readjust the price that we've... we've uh, indicated, by which time they knew they were the only bidder in town. And we, as the acting for the vendor, said um, two things. One was, no, it's just not acceptable. Now, that, that I mean, we'd all love to do that all the time. I mean, to be fair um, to other people, we were able to do that very convincingly because we were selling the last asset in the industry. There were no... if. if if the, these purchasers wanted to buy into the sector, this was their last opportunity. So we were able to say, no, that price is not acceptable, in it, it, with more conviction than, um, than perhaps uh, would normally be the case in, if you were selling a, a business which uh, competed with many other businesses that might or might not come up for sale. But also, it, it showed some considerable courage in the t at the time because... By that stage, the market hadn't got to know that um, the vendor was selling the business. That there was always a concern that, the ex that um, when a transaction fails and has been announced, fails to complete, that the, um, the prospective purchaser has found something wrong with the asset, and therefore you know, it is an unsellable asset, and that has negative implications for your ability to sell the asset in future, or, um, and also potentially for morale and, and indeed market perception. But HSBC fortunately was in a position where it didn't need the capital, unlike the other two vendors, and it was able to say, no, we're not prepared to sell. The other thing it did was say, right, 
we understand the markets are very volatile today. Let us um, have from you precisely the changes you want to make for every basis point change in long-term rates, gilt rates, margin, hedging costs, and everything. So we, we got a schedule of about 17 points where we negotiated over a period of, of a couple of months exactly what changes would be made up or down in the event of a move in the markets. And the markets were very volatile during that period. Um, and we said, and by the way, there's an absolute flaw. We're, we're not going to sell this business below this price, come what may. So with that flaw, these are the movements. And, the, and we were talking, we thought, of about um, uh, 40 to 50 million in the context of uh, a 2.1 billion pound transaction at the time. Um, as it transpired, the markets moved in our favour um, after the, the Irish crisis and because we, we structured the business uh, rather more positively than... Um, sorry, the, the other thing to say, the other thing that didn't help was that um, I referred earlier on to the fact that the two other transactions that had already been done had got partially three and five and seven year money. The, the three year money was getting, it wasn't at the end of its um, time, but it was getting close to the period where the, the, the new owner was beginning to think, I'm worried, I'm very worried now about a refinance risk because if I, if I can't refinance this at the end of the term, potentially, the, the asset would be in default and potentially, like EMI, the banks could take ownership of the asset. So they felt under considerable pressure to issue a bond in the summer of 2009. And in, in that period, they both issued bonds, which we were horrified at. We thought the, the prices were far too, too generous to the bondholders. And so that, again, was used as a, as a potential stick to beat us up with. But again, unusually... We didn't allow the, the purchaser to organize the finance. We said we would do that ourselves. And we got two credit ratings rather than one, which the other, other two transactions had done. And we offered other terms and conditions, which made our bonds more attractive than the competition, so that when the transaction was ultimately financed, it was done on more attractive terms than the competition. And we, you know, instead of having a, a, um, a potential negative valuation fluctuation of about fifty million pounds, we actually made um, considerably over hundred million pounds of positive value through doing it that way. I think I've touched on a number of these points in, in what I have said. Now, the other big issue on this transaction was that we we knew exactly what we wanted to do, but we didn't know precisely how we we're going to be able to do it. And as I mentioned at the outset. Um, a huge proportion of the value of this business was in was in the debt finance and the debt package. You know, over seventy or approximately seventy five percent of the value of the business was in that. So, how how can you agree a price and agree terms when you're not sure what the financing package is going to be, and you know both sides accept that it has a very significant impact on the value of the transaction? Well, we did what I just explained previously. We, we put together the staple package. Um, we, we forced the, the purchaser to explain to us exactly what his terms were, exactly what the variables were, and we agreed 
an adjustment mechanism such that when we issued the bonds, we would have a particular price would fall out of the bottom. And that was agreed in, in, in what was very volatile markets as the only way to, to actually bring this transaction to a conclusion. And just to reiterate, I mean, the transaction was awarded uh, M&A Infrastructure Deal of the Year, which we're very pleased about. So that concludes the formal presentation, but I'll happily answer any questions if you have them. Yeah.